what is prophecy? What is what really is prophecy? What does it mean to be a prophet like the prophet that's uh, dis described here in this picture? And what kind of message qualifies as a prophecy? Because I don't know about you, but when I hear that word, I automatically think of a prediction of the future. But in reality, there's a lot more to prophecy when we look at the meaning of it scripturally. So a couple of days ago, I pulled out my Bible software and did a search of the word prophet. And the word prophet and its derivatives show up almost 500 times in the Bible. But this verse here in Exodus chapter 7 verse 1 is just the second time that the word prophet shows up in the Bible. Interestingly, the first time it shows up, um, God is calling Abraham his prophet. And we've talked about Abraham quite a bit, but uh, it's this verse that for me is, is amazingly helpful in understanding the meaning of the word. So it goes like this in Exodus 7. It says, the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made thee a God to Pharaoh and Aaron, thy brother shall be thy prophet. Thou shalt speak all that I command thee and Aaron, thy brother shall speak unto Pharaoh that he send the children of Israel out of his land. So we've got some interesting language here. God is, is speaking to Moses and he's sending him to Pharaoh in Egypt. And if you were to look at the last verse of chapter six, the, the verse just before this in Exodus seven, Moses doesn't really want to go to Pharaoh. He's concerned because he doesn't feel like he's a good speaker. He's a good spokesman. And so God says, okay, Moses, I'll give you help. I'll, I'll send Aaron, your brother with you. And uh, what, what God says to Moses is you're going to be Moses like God. You're going to be like me. And your brother is going to be like a prophet. And so essentially, God is saying to Moses that you're going to be the leader. You're going to represent me. And Moses is going to take on the responsibility of doing the talking. So he's going to be the prophet or the messenger. And so God gives that title to Aaron. Because Moses would tell Aaron what to speak. And Aaron would speak the words to Pharaoh and and in that way, you've got a Bible definition of a prophet. It's really one who speaks on behalf of another and specifically on the behalf of God. And Moses is only God here because he's going to speak exactly the words that God commanded him. So he's going to represent God in this, in this discussion. Well, another way we could look at this word would be to pull out our concordances. And one of my go-to concordances is a concordance written by um, a man named Strong, that's his last name. And uh, that first bullet there under prophet is what you would find if you pulled out a, a concordance and, and looked there. And so the word prophet comes from those Hebrew letters. And uh, what follows there after the Hebrew letters is a transliteration, letter for letter, the Hebrew letters in English script. And then after that is a pronunciation. So the word we might call Nabi. And uh, the meaning is a prophet. Well, we knew that. But the other meaning is an inspired man, someone that speaks the words of God. We think of the Bible as being inspired. It, it comes from God. But there's another concordance, which is even cooler. It's called the Theological Word Book of the Old Testament. And what's neat about this book is it gives you the roots of the word, the etymology, where it comes from. And so the actual Hebrew root of the word for prophet means to, to bubble up. And just picture that, the... Uh, 
the words of God being inside you, and, and they're just bubbling up to the surface. And we're going to see in a minute that sometimes prophets couldn't even hold in the words when they wanted to. And so in that, in that word book, it gives this definition or this explanation of the word. It means to pour forth words like those who speak with fervor of mind or under divine inspiration as prophets and, and poets. So it's really vivid to think of that as God's words inside a person and they're just bubbling out. And uh, that's the idea of a prophecy or a, a prophet. But you can see from that that it's not just a prediction of, of future events. Anything God wanted to say to people through the prophets was a prophecy. So just uh, keep that in mind that prophecy is not just a prediction of future events, but any message that comes from God. And you can see that in verse 2. Um, Moses is told, you shall speak all that I command thee. So he'd give the message to Aaron, and Aaron would then give it to, to Pharaoh. And when they went to Pharaoh, they didn't just talk about future events like the, the plague of flies that would come or the, the plague of hail, but they also spoke other words, the message of, of what God was doing with his people Israel, the details of the sacrifices they would offer. Everything they said to Pharaoh was a prophecy. This, this verse from the New Testament from Hebrews is, is helpful. Um, it says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past, to the fathers, by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son. Now, this is a verse from the New Testament, and it's really about Jesus Christ. And he says, I've spoken through my Son. He's the ultimate prophet. In other words, Jesus is the ultimate prophet who would speak the words of God. But I spoke through him just like I used to speak through the prophets at various times and in various ways. And so all the prophets, although they were different and at different times, they were the ones that delivered God's messages. And there was lots of prophets. There was Ezekiel, there was Elijah, there was Elisha, there was Jonah, all different time periods. And we can think how they spoke in different ways. Um, Moses was a prophet who spoke directly to the nation. Ezekiel uh, acted out the messages. And we think of Jesus, who was the ultimate prophet, who taught the people in parables. So there's God in various times and in various ways, giving his message to the people by the prophets. And you know what? Sometimes the prophets didn't want to share the messages they had, especially if it was a hard message or, or one that people wouldn't want to listen to. Look at this verse from, from Jeremiah. So Jeremiah is a prophet. He delivered so many messages to the nation and, and they didn't like to listen. So he says, I'm, I'm not going to make mention of God anymore. I'm not going to speak anymore in his name. But his word was in my heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary with forbearing and I could not stay. So here's Jeremiah wishing that he wasn't a prophet. He would have to, he would like to suppress the messages from God, but he couldn't. They were there like a fire in his bones. So that's what a prophecy was like and uh, a prophet. Let's look at another instructive verse about prophecy. This one's really cool. We've, we've looked at this one before. This is actually a prophecy about a prophet. God is telling Moses that he would send another prophet. And that prophet, of course, was Jesus Christ. And, and we looked at this verse because this prophet was going to be like his brethren. And we showed that Jesus would be like other men. He would be like his brethren. But do you see what the definition of a prophet is here? 
God was going to put his words in the prophet's mouth and the prophet would speak unto the people all that he was commanded. That's the exact definition we have of a prophet. And Jesus was the ultimate one who always delivered the message of his prophet. But the verse goes on to say that there's a potential problem with prophets and, and the nation of Israel. God says there's going to be false prophets. Look at verse 20. But the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. And you see the problem here is that the people had to decide who were the prophets that were speaking the words from God. And as expected, there would be prophets that would speak their own message and, and claim that they were from God. And those prophets had to be put to death. And we're actually told that we need to be aware of the same situation. This is a warning that Peter gave to um, the brothers and sisters that were part of the church that he was writing to. And he says, there were false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. You know, that's, that's kind of a scary thought in a way that there's going to be some people who teach the Bible that are teaching the wrong thing, that are teaching their own teachings and claiming that it comes from the Bible or from God. Well, how can we know who's a true teacher and who's a false one? Well, God gave the Israelites a test. He said, well, there's, here's a way you can determine if a prophet is a true prophet. And he said in, in, in verse 21, as you continue on there, um, looks like it just went back on me. There we go. Verse 21. Um, he says, if they say in their heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord hath not spoken? How will we know who's the right prophet? He says, well, when a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken. But the prophet hath spoken it presumptuously. Thou shalt not be afraid of him. And this has to do with the predictive aspect of prophecy. Prophets would make short-term predictions and long-term predictions. And if the things that they predicted would happen shortly didn't come, come to pass, then you knew the things that they spoke about the future were wrong as well. Well, how does that apply to us? How, how does this help us know who's teaching the Bible truth? Well, we can look at the interpretations of those that are teaching and, and see if they're consistent with what's happening in the world. For example, there's Bible students that predicted that the nation of Israel would be reestablished um, hundreds of years before they were established. So those would be prophets that speak the truth. But you know what? There's a, a very interesting verse uh, that talks about true and false prophets a little later in the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, this is Deuteronomy chapter 13. And you see, it wasn't enough for a prophet to make a prediction that came true their message also had to be consistent with what God taught the nation. So look at verse 1. If there arise a prophet among you, or a dreamer of dreams, and giveth thee a sign, or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder come to pass, whereof he spake, saying, Let us go after other gods, which thou hast not known, and let us serve them, thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet. So look at the scenario here. Here's a prophet who gives a sign, a prediction, and it comes to exactly like he says, it seems like he passes the test of a prophet, but there's a problem. 
the prophet is telling the people to do something that goes against the will of God. He's telling them, let's go after other gods, the gods of the nations. And so even though he predicted something and it came to pass, that was a false prophet. He was not true because his message had to be consistent with the message of God. And look what it says there. For the Lord your God proveth you to know whether ye love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So God actually allowed those prophets to speak those things. God actually allowed the things they said to come to pass as a test for the people because the people had to weigh what the prophets said against what they knew about God. And you can see the principle for us that there will be false teachers of the Bible. They might even be convincing. They might look like they come from God. But the way to test a prophet or teacher is to compare the message with what the Bible says. And look at what it says here in, uh, in 1 John chapter 4. It says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. You've got to apply the test. You've got to know the scriptures, the Bible, so that you can see whether the teachings that you're being taught are true. And so, as we thought about the Bible seminar and the webinar, we thought about the principle of testing the prophets. And we thought we needed to come up with a plan for the next few weeks. And so we've decided that we would continue the Bible Basics webinar, but divide our classes into new, two new sections. Uh, to this point, every week has been divided into Bible prophecy and Bible reading. Well, we're going to introduce you to two new topics that we're going to use going forward. And they both relate to the need to understand the teachings of the Bible. So the first thing we're going to look at is key Bible themes. And we've subtitled this the fundamental Bible ideas and teachings. They're the foundation stones of a proper understanding of the Bible, the basics upon which we can test every idea or every doctrine. Now, I'd be wrong to say that we've completely worked out all the exact topics, but here's some of the, the themes that we've brainstormed so far and that we hope to come, cover in future weeks of our webinar. We'll look at things like Bible inspiration, the character of God, the use of the word spirit, the study of the word soul. We'll look at where evil comes from, the purpose of life. We'll look at the fact that there's only one faith. We might consider topics like the Sabbath or, or the oneness of God. These are our foundational topics, the key teachings of the Bible, topics that can be introduced in, in 15 or 20 minutes. And they're topics that once you start to understand, they'll help you to, to understand the message of any chapter that you might read. And as we thought about this key Bible themes that we want to cover, we also thought about the fact that our webinars have drawn on verses from every part of the Bible. And we thought how overwhelming the Bible can be for beginners. You know, we've taken you to Revelation. We've taken you to books like Habakkuk, you know, obscure parts of the scripture that uh, are difficult to know where they fit into the context. And sometimes we've assumed that those listening have a knowledge of the entire Bible. So our second theme is aimed at helping provide you with some context. What we want to do is help you as Bible students find your way around the Bible. Our hope is to break the Bible into some bite-sized pieces and provide the context of each section. 
Now, when we thought about it, our original name was Overview of the Bible that I've put there in the subtitle. But you know what? That sounds pretty daunting. So what we want to do is take some broad sections of the Bible and give a brief introduction. We're not going to look at in-depth of, of any of them, but pick out the key details, give you an overview, establish some timelines and context for various parts of the scripture. And again, the, the titles we have aren't set in stone. They'll likely evolve as we go forward. But we want to proceed somewhat in order throughout the Bible, although we plan to alternate between Old and New Testament topics. So you can see there on the, the left side of the screen, we have Old Testament topics. We'll look at things like Genesis, the book of beginnings, uh, the patriarchs, the early fathers of, of God's work. We'll look a little bit about the time they spent in Egypt, and then when they came out of Egypt, and their wilderness, and the law of Moses, and that'll take us into the judges and the kings. And in the New Testament, we will try to answer questions like, why are there four Gospels? Or what are the Acts of the Apostles about? What were the journeys of, of the Apostle Paul and the epistles that were written? And it's our hope that we can help you through these two sections to understand the Bible and its key teachings. And we pray that as we take this journey together, that God will guide us and help us to know those things that are true and to separate them from the things that might be the work of false prophets. And it's our prayer that you'll, you'll continue with us as we, as we continue on with our Bible Basics webinar. And we'll give you a little bit more details about this at the end of our webinar tonight. But I'm gonna stop at this point and, and turn over to Samuel, who's going to take us through the section on Bible reading as we look at love in the New Testament. All right. Um, so now that we've looked at prophecy, we're going to take a look at uh, love in the New Testament. So love in the English language is a word that can vary and have many different meanings depending on the context in which it is used and which it is said. In the Bible, the same can be seen with the word love in the Bible there. Generally, when we think of love in the Bible, there are some key aspects we need to look at. There you go. So when we think of love in terms of the scriptures, God is the ultimate perfection of our love. And John, First John chapter four verse eight, it says, "He that lo loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love." So basically, if we ourselves do not have love, we can't know God. God is the embodiment of love. Along with that, we have Jesus telling his disciples that before he was to be crucified, that he was laying down his life for them. And John 15 verse, th 15, verse 13, we read, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay it down his life for his friends. And so we see that God is the embodiment of love, and Jesus has demonstrated that love in the act of laying down his life for us. Related to both of this, we read in John 3, verse 16, a very well-known verse that connects to this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting love. The result of this love is that we are shown that we, that is the command for us to love one another. Jesus is once again spe is speaking to his disciples, and we read in John 13, verse 35, By this all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. So that we see here demonstrate, illustrated, is a love that is self-sacrificing, a love that is so great that it's willing to give up, we're willing to give up what is most precious to us. 
So in the Bible, there are two different, in the English, sorry. In the Bible and in the English, we may see that the word love, but in the Greek, in the New Testament, there are actually two different main words that are translated into our English word love. So in the time that we have tonight, we're going to take a brief look at each of these words and what they mean and how they can change the way we understand the scripture we look at. The main two words that have been translated into our word, English word love is the words agape and philio. Both of these are, have separate meanings. So agape is a love that is affection, the idea of putting other people before yourself, an all-encompassing love towards others. Whereas filio is a love that is the type that is born from friendship, of personal attachment and to a person that is formed through mutual connections and interests. Agape, there's two different versions of it, and together they appear 258 times in the New Testament, and filio appears at 25 times. So we see that in both definitions, there's certainly this aspect of love that we think of in a general sense in the English language, but the Greek gives us a better idea of what type of love that is being mentioned in the verses. So both of these words are in the New Testament and are translated many times as love, and yet are words that are much more complex and have different meanings than can, that can change the understanding when we read the verses. Neither of these words really has anything to do with our romantic sense of love that we often think of when we hear the word love today. So let's take a closer look at each of these words and we'll start with the one, we'll start with agape. Agape is the type of love that would often be called the charity type of love, as we have seen it mentioned in the definition, of many definitions of the word. It is the type of love that is self-sacrificing. It is about putting those things that are important before ourselves. It often has to do with putting ourselves last. It is often referred to as godly love and self-sacrificing love. This is the form of love that is emphasized and used much more frequently in the Bible and appears many times. In the more modern translations, the word is often translated as love, but also in the King James, though, version of the Bible, the word is sometimes translated as charity, coming from the old English idea of sacrificing. Today, when we think of charity, we often think of it as giving money or other things away to certain causes or to those that are less fortunate than us. But to see, understand a little bit better in the Bible, we're going to look at the emphasis of charity in the most, one of the most well-known chapters about love in 1 Corinthians 13. It's often written about on plaques, out on plaques, sorry, and you can often hear it at weddings. So we're just going to take a look at some of the qualities that Corinthians has about charity. Though I speak with the tongues of men, of angels, and have not charity, I am become as a sounding brass or tinkling cymbal. And then later, and have not charity, I am nothing. It tell, the First Corinthians 13 tells us charity is suffereth long and is kind. Charity, charity envieth not, charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, does not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, but eas not easily provoked, and thinketh no evil. And finally, that charitith that never faileth. Of course, this is not an exhaustive list of what 1 Corinthians 13 talks about. And we note that each time in this chapter, when the word charity appears, it is actually the word agape, or love. Hence, most modern translations use love. But an even deeper meaning, we know, it is talking about our self-sacrificing love. So the Greek word agape is a much deeper meaning than what we often associate with charity today. 
Agape, it is the idea that we really are not concerned with ourselves. It is the idea of putting oneself last and other people first. It is the idea of putting things of God before you ever think of yourself and your own needs. It is thinking of what is good for the other person and what would make them better off. It is about ensuring the betterment of someone else's life without looking for something in return for yourself. Agape is probably the most important love talked about in the Bible. It is the one that is most talked about. It is the love that we need most in our lives. So let's look at a few verses that use the word agape in the New Testament. As we read of them, let's think about this idea of self-sacrificing love. So the first example we have is from Matthew 5, verses 43 to 44, which says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that which despitefully use you and persecute you. Both instances of both use of the words love in these two verses is the agape type of love. So not only are we supposed to have a self-sacrificing love for our neighbors, but we're also supposed to have a self-sacrificing love for the people that we consider our enemies. Other examples include 1 Peter 3 verse 10. Whoops. For he that will, will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Another example we see of the word agape is in Ephesians 5 verse 2. And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and have given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling fit savior. So the second example, oh, sorry, yeah, second example of love that is word that is often translated as love in the New Testament is the word filio, which is often used as a root word for many other words that express concepts and ideas related to love. The word filio is often linked to this idea of brotherly love. It is often between two people that love each other so much that they. Um, sorry. Many of us might know that Philadelphia means literally the city of brotherly love. Filio, which means love, and Adolfo, which means brother. This idea of love has to do with friendship. It's a love that's between two people that love each other so much that they see one, that one other person as a brother or a sister. It's the idea of two people bonding over something that is of similar interest to each other. It is a love that which people share a devotion towards similar things instead of each other in the ideas of romantic love. This is a bond that exists whether it is one related by blood or not. Example of verses where this word filio appears is now that is one of them is in Matthew 26 verse 48. Now he that is betrayed gave them a sign saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he, hold him fast. Um, and that word kiss is actually the word filio, which is a very interesting concept to think about, that Judas and this idea of filial love towards Jesus. And then another example would be John 5, verse 20. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth on him all things that himself doeth, and he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. So brother, this filio, which is brotherly love, it's formed through a mutual connection. It's formed... It is meant to be worked on. It is the idea of a close friendship. It's a love for the family that you choose. 
there's also filio and agape are two aspects of love. So we're going to look at one verse where there these two ideas of love are. So we're going to go back to John 15, verse 13, which we looked at a little earlier, which reads, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man may lay down his life for his friends. So this verse is showing a connection between these two words in the Greek language that are often translated into love in our English language. The word love in this verse is the word agape, and the Greek word for friend in this verse is where we get our the other word we have for love, philio, is derived from. So what we see here is when we look at this verse, that Jesus tells us that there's no greater love that we can have than a sacrifi sacrificial love for one of our friends. What is an amazing thing where the filial, our Lord Jesus tells us that he has this sacrificing love and we need to have it too towards our friends and that we need to have a deep tender affection for, which is really a wonderful thought. So one of the best passages of scriptures that helps us contrast between the two different words for love is found in John 21. This is after Jesus has been raised from the dead, where Peter and John have gone back to do some fishing and along comes the Lord. So when we read these, this, it starts, we're going to read verses 15 and 7 to 17. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, Lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith, un saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, Lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things, thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, feed my sheep. In these verses, we see that the two different words for love appear in this passage. Christ uses one and Peter another. Christ uses agape. The first two for the first two questions he asks, and Peter uses filio in each of his replies. And the third time, both Jesus and Peter use the word filio. So let's read this passage knowing this. And just for I have highlighted in blue, in bolded, that's agape, and green and bolded is filio. So we're going to just reread this verse, these verses slightly different now. Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, Lovest thou me with a self-sacrificing love more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee with the affection of a friend. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. Jesus saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest with a self-sacrificing love thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love with the affection of a friend. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou with the affection of a friend? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, lovest as a friend thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee as a friend. Jesus saith unto him, feed my sheep. So this is just one good example, but it's a, one example, but it's a good one to show how knowing the words and the underlying the English version can help us have a much deeper understanding of the of the words in English. So that's all we have for tonight. But um, 
announcements for uh, next week is um, we're going to actually take a week off and we're going to resume the webinars on Thursday, September 3rd, 730.